underwater archaeology holds a special place in historic preservation. Dramatic, risky, cold, murky, they're all words that come to mind to describe this act. For the stalwart archaeologists of the United States Naval History and Heritage Command, it's not just about finding history, it's also about protecting the 242-year legacy of the United States Navy. Dr. Robert Nealon, the head of the Navy's underwater archaeology branch, is leading that effort and has worked on some of the nation's most famous underwater projects, including the iconic H.L. Hunley in Charleston, South Carolina. Get ready for a deep dive into the world of naval underwater archaeology on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined in studio by Dr. Robert Neeland, who is the head of the Underwater Archaeology Branch of the United States Navy's Naval History and Heritage Command. He holds his degrees from Texas A&M University, and his areas of specialization are underwater archaeology, naval archaeology, and historical archaeology. His extensive fieldwork includes serving as director of the recovery operations for the Confederate submarine H.L. Hunley, the excavation of John Paul Jones' birthplace, and of the survey and excavation of the War of 1812 ship USS Scorpion. Bob, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about Navy underwater archaeology. So, um, pretty cool background. A lot of great projects that I'm looking forward to talking with you about. How did you get into all of this? Is this was You just came out of the womb doing archaeology or a couple different paths into this? Well, I, I did a lot of other things in, in my life before uh, uh, doing this. Uh, a lot of things have seemed more practical as far as um, jobs and stuff. But uh, from a young age, I always loved archaeology, was always very interested in it. Uh, I went to the Carnegie Library in my hometown and pulled off books, the few books they had on, on archaeology. And uh, also I grew up in the generation when people watched uh, Lloyd Bridges and Sea Hunt and, uh, you know, had this, had this keen interest in uh, diving uh, as well. And uh, after doing many different things in my life, uh, in you know, actually, uh, gosh, being in, in my in my late thirties, I decided to go back to college. Uh, and a friend of mine told me about a program in um, underwater archaeology at uh, Texas A and M University because he, this uh, friend, uh, knew that I had an interest in archaeology and had an interesting an interest in diving. And so you were you were doing diving. You got this degree, and what's your first job after? Securing the you know the academic credentials, where do you end up working? Okay, well, it again. Let me go back a little bit to A and M. Um, they had a program there in, in uh, nautical archaeology, and uh, some of the professors in that of that program at the time were doing some of the leading research in the world on underwater archaeology. So I got to work at a number of really exciting places. I got to work on a sunken city, seventeenth uh, century city in Jamaica at Port Royal, which was um, you know from the famous from the Johnny Depp movies now from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, but uh, we. We actually, uh, the city was sunk in an earthquake in 1692, so we did a season there, excavating the remains of that city and recovering a lot of really interesting uh, cultural material. Uh, I also got to work on a site uh, at the time, it was it, the oldest shipwreck in the world, off the coast of um, uh, Turkey, and again, a Bronze Age shipwreck that was um, at a site called Ulubarun, which was uh, a pretty exciting site. Uh, 
and uh, then was you know able to work on other projects, looking for uh, Columbus's lost ships, and again in Jamaica, as well as doing a number of other things on the Texas coast and elsewhere. But um, in in the mid nineties. I was finishing my degree up, and uh, at the same time, the Navy was looking for someone to advise them, help them create a program to manage uh, the Navy's shipwrecks. Uh, because by that time, the Navy had uh, you know, realized that with a lot of interest in, in, in shipwrecks and developments in technology, that uh, there were a lot more threats to the Navy's shipwrecks that were out there. And, and then in, under principles, international principle, principles of sovereign immunity, uh, just like a, a surface naval vessel uh, is, is belo- you know, belongs to you know, uh, that sovereign nation and cannot be interfered with, so do the, ship, so do the wrecks of those ships, provided they haven't been surrendered or captured, uh, still belong to the U.S. government, U.S. Navy. So the, we've got some 2,000 shipwrecks uh, dating from the period of the Continental Navy up through uh, the present, scattered all around the world's oceans that are still belong to the U.S. Navy. Uh, the same with other military crafts, such as uh, aircraft. There's a, quite a number of uh, sunken aircraft, especially from uh, World War II, that are still the property of the United States, um, and uh, even though they may be in uh, international waters or even in foreign waters. And so... I, you're kind of getting into this right right away, which is the, sort of the work of the Naval History and Heritage Command and and the importance of this. Um, I do have a question just sort of in terms of underwater archaeology. You kind of mentioned briefly that you had this interest in diving. Is it a different skill set in terms of diving when you're doing underwater archaeology? Is it more difficult? Is there training associated with that or... Well, it's your. I also had all the all the keen interest in archaeology, probably even before I had interest in diving. But yes, you can you can kind of mesh the, the two together. But uh, um, the, the the skills of, of being an archaeologist are, are are very similar, if not the same, between terrestrial sites and underwater. I would say underwater is a harder environment to work in, simply because you've got all these other environmental factors. You know, obviously obviously being underwater, but you can have a limited vi- visibility. You can have a limited time to work because of depth and, and, and decompression and uh, the nitrogen buildup in your body. Uh, you can also have strong currents that also can affect uh, your ability to work as well as temperature and, and, and uh, other issues as well too. So underwater is can be a very challenging environment. Uh, a lot of times people, when they think about underwater archaeology, they think about work that's being done in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean or somewhere in the Pacific where the water is pristine, crystal clear. Which would be nice. Like a swimming pool, which is, would be nice. And it's great when that, that happens. And what I was doing, you know, some of my graduate work, it, I was able to dive in those environments. But quite often, the shipwrecks we're interested in, the Navy's wrecks, and, and other wrecks uh, as well, too, they're in areas, uh, harbors or rivers or streams that uh, are very turbid. Uh, the water is very clouded. You can have a, a foot or two of visibility to zero visibility. And you really have to learn to excavate uh, almost by braille, uh, by feel and by touch. And it's amazing. You can, you, you can, uh, teach yourself how to recognize simply by touch what you're working with and and and, um, and how to map these things in as well too under those conditions um, it definitely it, it is challenging uh, one of the problems one of the issues we had when they worked on a site in Turkey that was in a we're at 160 180 feet of water is again you only have uh, 20 minutes uh, at a time uh, maybe twice a day to to actually um, 
uh, from the surface, um, you know, to the time you come back up to the surface. So it doesn't give you much time to excavate and work because of uh, issues with decompression and nitrogen in the body as well, too. So you have, you know, make what a little bit of time you have on the site count in, in those in those um, environments where um, you, you have to consider um, decompression. So taking a step back, sort of, I mean, you kind of you dove in and, and sort of give us some uh and pardon the pun, dive in there, but you, you gave us some, some background on, um, you know, the, the, the fantastic work that is being done and, and the value of this and all that sort of thing. But why did the Navy make the decision to sort of invest in this? Is it that it's their property, they need to take care of it? Is it, is it an issue of legacy? Are they thinking about the remains of actual sailors out there? I mean, what's the, what's the primary interest of the United States Navy in this? Well, it, it's certainly, certainly all of those things that you mentioned. Uh, I would say at the time that I came on board, there were a number of issues um, you know, pro- provided to ownership and, and, and management they were coming up. One of the uh, the key um, um, wrecks that uh, Naval History and Heritage Command, at that time they were Naval Historical Center, was involved in, involved a Confederate warship that was sunk in French waters, the CSS Alabama. Uh, it had been discovered in by um, a fr- French Navy team, and it was being excavated by French um, archaeologists. But um, it was it, it became apparent to especially interested parties in the United States, especially from the, the state of Alabama in particular, where there was a namesake for the ship that uh, that this vessel uh, was they believed was still U.S. government property uh, because of uh, the Confederacy. All the property of the Confederacy uh, became the property of the United States at the end of the war, and. Um, so anyway, there was negotiations between uh, France and the United States and the French uh, because, again, they also realized they have warships, especially from World War II, World War I, that are sunk in foreign waters. And those sites are, are important to them historically, but they're also war graves that they have an interest in, in, in you know, main, just like the United States did, of maintaining the sovereignty of their warships. So the CSS Alabama was, a, I think, was a key issue. One reason the Navy wanted someone to help to um, develop a program for underwater archaeology for for these sites. Also, there was the issue is once the artifacts, once these artifacts are brought up, they can be very well preserved and you can have very unique finds. But because they've been under in salt water for many many years, that they can deteriorate very 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 rapidly once they've been brought up if they're not tr- properly treated, uh, conserved, the salts removed from the metals. Uh, and corrosion stopped, or in the case of organic material, wood, such as uh, leather, um, that these things are, are, are preserved with a, a special technique, such as uh, microcrystalline wax, to bulk up those components um, that preserve the wood. So, so all of those things are kind of, of a part of All of those things. This. Also, there's the issue of human remains. Uh, certainly, that's a very, an issue where it uh, is a very important now to my command is the question of human remains. Many of these sites are or war graves. Um, our command just finished uh, um, helping prepare a, uh, a policy that was signed out by the Secretary of Navy uh, regarding a fit and final resting place that uh, these warships, these sunken sites, are a fit and final resting place for those servicemen, uh, women who you know sacrificed their lives for the country, for the mission. So tell us a little bit about how it works. I mean, is it is it, how big is the your your department there? Is it all civilians? Do you have military working with you? Um, and how many projects, maybe sort of to give us an idea of the portfolio, are you working on right now? 
Um, well, my command is Naval History and Heritage Command, and it's, it's, it's part military and it's part civilian. Our director is uh, retired Admiral Samuel Cox. Uh, he is a civilian, but uh, obviously he, he was formerly Navy. His previous job was Navy. We have a lot of former retired Navy as well as active duty uh, working for us. As far as underwater archaeology, uh, we have six uh, federal employees and two contractors, uh, and occasionally in a, in, a, in a series of interns as well, too, summer interns, people working and doing graduate work in uh, archaeology uh, or conservation or, or related fields. So, so I would say we have usually about eight to, eight to ten people, um, you know, combined working on several thousand sites. So, several, to, so in terms of the portfolio of what you're working on, Several thousand sites, right? Well, now. potentially several thousand sites. We're not working on every one of those every day, but uh, some of we have sites that are our own ongoing research projects. You mentioned um, um, the War of eighteen twelve, uh, Scorpion, which was the flagship of uh, um, Joshua Barney, who was a Revolutionary War hero and also um, um, a hero uh, of Maryland as well, too, as a Maryland resident. Uh, so we've, you know. And finishing up the research on that, we're still doing some more work looking for the wrist of the uh, the sunken war of 1812 flotilla in the Patuxent River. Uh, we've had some ongoing research looking for uh, John Paul Jones' ship, the Bonhomme Richard, uh, Bonhomme Richard, that's in uh, the sunken in the North Sea um, uh, in a bat- after um, after a battle off of uh, Flamborough Head. So we've been working off and on in that. Again, that's a ch- can be a challenging environment, uh, the North Sea. We've been doing a number of, uh, we've got a project looking at um, um, uh, aircraft sunk off of uh, Patuxent River Naval Air Station, which again is in Maryland. Uh, We've uh, also had a project looking at a ship wreck uh, off Rhode Island that was uh, the USS Revenge, which was captained by Oliver Hazard Perry uh, before the War of 1812, before he became famous for um, um, uh, his participation in that battle and uh, as well. So, but we also get those are projects we ourselves have chosen. Those are your research projects. Uh, recent projects, and ones, and sometimes these things are ongoing because they take multiple years to um, um, to complete. But also, we get a lot of projects from other people who have found wrecks or who are trying to find wrecks. Uh, recently, there's been um, you know, uh, the group funded by Paul Allen Vulcan, which has found the uh, the Indianapolis. Um, in, you know, in about five miles of water out in the middle of the Pacific, uh, and, you know, in, as well as many other shipwrecks as well, too, uh, Lexington, um, uh, others. And they, the plans are for them to continue to find various famous World War II wrecks. Another group uh, called the L- L-52 is looking for the lost submarines from World War II, uh, the lost 52 submarines from that time period. And... Um, we uh, rec- I was recently on a um, uh, British Ministry of Defense vessel on a project looking at uh, two LSTs that were lost from Operation Tiger, which was part of the pre-D-Day invasion training and uh, tragic situation where uh, German uh, surface vessels, E-boats, uh, interrupted the training mission and attacked uh, landing large landing ship tanks. Uh, sunk several of them, and um, in the chaos, uh, some some you know vessels were hit by friendly fire, and about six or seven hundred people, um, servicemen died in that in in that attack. So on any given day, you can go from the 18th century to the 1940s and 
probably to be on to uh, Vietnam. Uh, I mean. Exactly. Uh, we, we don't get that many requests from Vietnam, but we certainly we, you know, our responsibilities can go that far as well. Um, but um, yeah, we've had it, you know, issues with some of the Cold War submarines that were lost, uh, the USS Scorpion uh, there as well, which also brings in other issues since it was, you know, a, a nuclear vessel as well. And, um, but yeah, we, we would certainly go switch gears from Revolutionary War up to certainly World War II almost virtually every day. Uh, and certainly air- aircraft as well, too, because certainly quite a number of sunken aircraft out there. We work uh, closely with other organizations such as uh, DPAA, which is the Defense POW MIA Accountability Office, which are, uh, are, whose mission is to uh, recover um, ser- the remains of servicemen from um, the various wars, Vietnam, Korea, and um, um, World War II. So we, we coordinate and work with them on, on their missions to um, uh, recover remains from uh, Navy aircraft. So let's talk about another project that um, I, I know you've worked on that um, I think a lot of people around the country are probably, are probably familiar with, if they're familiar with um, any type of um, bringing up of a historic vessel, which is the H.L. Hunley. I mentioned it sort of in the intro there in Charleston, South Carolina. That has gotten a lot of press, and obviously you can go and visit this now. What role did you play in that? Um, tell us a little bit about that story and, and, and how that all came together. Okay, well, that was a, a great experience. Um, it Probably one of the most challenging projects I've ever been involved with just because the complexity of, uh, uh, of, of doing a recovery of this fragile submarine and having to uh, work with engineers and um, various ocean scientists and corrosion experts uh, to, um, to, to bring it up and, um, in one piece and bring it into a laboratory environment where it could be opened and, and the excavated. It also had the uh, remains of the eight crew involved. Uh, still in the submarine, but I was uh, I, I was um, the project director for that uh, project. I oversaw the uh, recovery planning, the actual recovery, uh, the successfully bringing it into a laboratory environment, in, in which you know, we oversaw the the actual uh, construction of a state of the art conservation laboratory in Charleston, South Carolina, and um, uh, opened it and recovered the remains of the eight crewmen who were still inside the submarine. Um, and uh, we're st- still work- still continuing the work of the analysis uh, with that, working with the various um, uh, other scientists, such as Doug Owsley at the Smithsonian Institution, who's their forensic anthropologist, to, um, to uh, report on you know, the um, analysis of the crew members, their identification, uh, and um, you know the, um, the various aspects of the interior of the submarine and that excavation. And the long term for that project is that it's going to be in a in a permanent museum I guess eventually I mean I know that they've drained it of water and at this point right it is out of the water or how do, well, where, what's the current status it, it's not completely out of the water yet it's still undergoing conservation okay and which it was recovered in 2000 and here we are in, in 2018 so we can show you how long these it takes to bring these projects to fruition the the submarine is um being um is being deconcreted the exterior, and by deconcreted, when iron is in salt water, it forms a, um, a con- concrete or concretion-like layer uh, around it, and which can help to protect it. But this, uh, this concretion layer also uh, has to be removed. So the submarine has um, been in a tank. Uh, it's now in a solution of uh, sodium hydroxide, uh, which a high pH solution helps in removing any, uh, the salts or chlorides from the iron. Uh, the exterior has been completely 
deconcreted. Uh, the interior is going through the process, also has concretion, and it's going through the process, uh, which is much more tedious, uh, to deconcrete that interior just simply because there's more uh, delicate surface areas um, within it. But, um, and also, pre, you know, before you could get to this level of trying to de deconcrete the interior, you had to remove a lot of the machinery from the interior. There was a wooden bench that the, uh, the seven of the eight men sat on. Uh, there were pumps, both in the, a forward pump and an after pump. Both of those pumps had to be removed, and then they had to be disassembled. Uh, it, and um, all the pieces separately conserved. Uh, and then again, it, some of, in a case of a pump, for example, it's not all complete. You wouldn't conserve it all the same way. You would conserve um, uh, the iron and the metal in a certain way, but you'd also have rubber gaskets uh, that have to be conserved in it by a separate, a separate means. So it, I see why it took 18 years. Exactly. So it basically, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a complex process of conserving uh, some of these um, artifacts uh, from you know 19th century and 20th century shipwrecks. So when was the last time you were down to see it? Do you see it often still? Uh, I was I was there in the spring. Uh, we are working on. We published um, a report um, on the recovery, which is available on on our website or online. At, but uh, we're now working on the second report, which uh, is deals with the excavation of the submarine's interior, the mapping of the submarine's interior, and uh, the uh, analysis and identification of the eight crew members. So the work continues, I guess. So the work, yes, the work continues. So speaking of sort of continuing work and what's on the horizon, um, I am curious, since you got involved in this and you've been with the History and Heritage Command for, for, for quite a while now, um, how has the technology changed? Is it making your work easier? Or is there, are there pieces of technology that you um, didn't use at the beginning that are just you're constantly used now? Um, well, technology can be a kind of a double-edged blade because it, it has great benefits. You can do, um, it makes some things easier, but it also means you can do, you will end up doing more than you might have done previously before you had the technology. Uh, but remote sensing technology, which enables the one to find shipwrecks, uh, it has um, increased quite a, quite a great deal in the last 20 years. Hence, that's why we're always hearing in the news about people finding new shipwrecks. Uh, advances have been made in both uh, uh, sonar, uh, in uh, something called multi-beam uh, multi uh, sonar, um, also in, in, in technologies that uh, uh, move these systems around. Now you have autonomous underwater vehicles where someone can you know, drop off this, this AUV and uh, program it, and it can go out and map the ocean floor and then come back and download its data. Uh, so there's there's great great advances in um, in the tech, in remote sensing technology. Also, there's great advances in uh, geographic information systems and positioning information. So you can take this data and you can precisely um, uh, locate it and and manage it uh, within a, a an information system or geographic information system. But in terms uh, of what you were saying, is it does that also then kind of Go well, into the analysis paralysis bit. I mean, where you can just be well, overwhelmed does, with yes. data. Uh, it well, it's so in some cases perhaps so because you get huge vast amounts of data, and it is it is a lot more work to uh, to manage that data. But but you can do because you have new technologies. You can you tend to do more with those technologies. Another thing example is three D mapping. Now you can take sites uh, that you would. And, um, and create a, a 3D computer map of them because you can gather the data either through sonar or photogrammetry, and you can turn that into a 3D image, which is, is much, you know, 
is a great improvement over interpretation, both for the scientists and for the public. Uh, but then also now that you can do it, you tend to you tend to do that as well. Right. And, and then what do you do with that data then? How do well, you manage that data? How do yeah, you, yeah. And then how, how do you, you how do you how do you keep it? How do you store it? Because you can get uh, you know. Uh, huge amounts of remote sensing data that you then, if you want, you want to keep up with and you want to store as well too. Uh, but then again, now with 3D printers, you can take those 3D uh, computer uh, imagery and you can print that out in 3D form. And, and have you and done we, that? And we have done that. Yeah, we we have done that. Uh, so you have a little Hunley on your desk or something? Uh, like we that? have some Hunleys. We have. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we also have uh, one of the Alexandria shipwrecks that was found recently. Mm-hmm. Some of our team went over and helped out uh, with a mapping of that first uh, shipwreck that was found in Alexandria, in 18th century uh, hull remains. And then the Navy actually, for them, did a did a 3D print of it as a test project, and uh, and we've uh, loaned it. Out. We provided that to um, the city of Alexandria. Pretty cool. So uh, also recently, one recent project we've done, we looked at the uh, a team from uh, my branch, is led by uh, Dr. Alexis. At Sambas, looked at the uh, the largest uh, ship lost during World War One, the USS San Diego, which was sunk off of uh, in 1918, was sunk by either German uh, torpedo or German uh, laid mine from a U-boat, uh, a few miles off uh, Fire Island area, and so a team. Uh, a Navy team was up there recently, and uh, mapping uh, that shipwreck, and um, we have we have done a 3D both. 3D map of the wreck and a smaller version of 3D printouts of the shape. And uh, working with another Navy command, Naval Service Warfare Center, to uh, analyze the uh, the damage to the hull to try to determine whether it was indeed a German torpedo or a German mine that sank the ship. So if people want to learn more about this, they want to see some of this stuff or learn about the projects that you're working on, where can they find more information? Where can they find the Naval History and Heritage Command? Well, they, they can go. We are located in the Washington Navy Yard. Um, they're in D.C., and there is a Navy museum there within the, uh, within the Navy Yard as well, too, with the National Museum of the U.S. Navy. Uh, they can also go to our website, find us at um, history.navy.mil, and uh, look at underwater archaeology. And uh, they can see there what, uh, you know, what, you know, what, we do, what we do, some of our projects. Also, for people that are carrying out research, there's our permitting program. We actually have a permitting program. So if someone wants to do intrusive work on a U.S. Navy shipwreck or aircraft wreck, they have to take out a permit uh, with us. Uh, we, one thing I didn't mention, we were instrumental in, um, in, in drafting and getting passed uh, the Sunken Military Craft Act, which was signed into law in 2004, which, again, in, ensures protect, protections of, um, of these sovereign immune uh, military craft, whether they're Navy or Army or Marine Corps or Air Force. Right. I mean, it really is, it's this interesting connection between sort of the past, between legacy, between concern for you know, fallen sailors, and then also heritage and archaeology. I mean, it's an interesting area that you work. It's it's pretty unique. Um, then that's that's correct. I mean, we we we, we cover areas of both you know of archaeology, uh, conservation uh, of the materials as well, and. And, and, and getting into some of the other scientific analysis or why these materials might be corroding or deteriorating. Also, the question of uh, respect for human remains, for military, for military sites, questions pertaining to maritime admiralty law as well in, in there. We work uh, with other nations, uh, again, to protect our wrecks within that are, uh, their waters. 
and and then you know do a you know and deal with a lot of public education as well too. Part of our command's mission is of course public education and education within within the Navy itself as well too. Well, that's why it's great to have you here today with us in PreserveCast. Well, thank you. So, in terms of what's on the horizon for the command, um, any interesting projects or things that are you're looking at in the future here? Well, there's there's some interesting trends that uh, that are occurring, um, and some of them I found I found surprising. One is you know we have um, uh, well-funded private entities. I mentioned uh, Paul Allen's uh, uh, Vulcan, uh, for example, but there are others out there as well too. Um, you know, there's um, you know, um, Ocean um, the Smith Ocean Institute. But in, anyway, you've got very wealthy individuals that have taken interest in um, discovering uh, important historical shipwreck sites, and then are privately funded funding these using state-of-the-art technology, dedicated research that are actually going out to, to, to locate ships like the USS Indianapolis or the USS Lexington um, and uh, doing it on their own dime. And that's, that's kind of an interesting trend that seems to be occurring with, uh, you know, in a sign, too, that some, to some extent the technology, the cost of the technology has, has come down um, to a point that private individuals, private groups, private not-for-profits can go out and discover wrecks just for the simple uh, joy or pleasure or interest of discovery. And that that's occurring a lot. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Is the it other, good or bad? I, I think, well, I think it's good as long as long as the work is, is uh, you know, re- respectful. And most of it, what I have seen, and the intent is not to loot the sites uh, or, or take things from them, I think. And that in that case, though, they certainly, you know, that is certainly a good trend. It's certainly helping, you know, us with our management responsibilities by providing us data on the condition of the site and the location of the site uh, as well. Um, so that that's occurring. I, I will say that, you know, the the downside of, of some of that, and it's not really it's not really these private groups finding the sites, but the sites that are perhaps being threatened in um, Pacific Asian waters. Uh, is you know certain countries, Malaysia, um, uh, Indonesia, other places where you've got private, uh, perhaps illegal salvage groups going out for scrap iron and, and completely scrapping, you know these vast World War II uh, shipwrecks, and that that's that's a tragedy. And we're been we're working with the government of Indonesia precisely to preserve uh, our wrecks that are in their waters. Uh, certainly, one that's is the USS Houston, uh, which was sunk, uh, you know, in the Battle of the Sunda Straits. And so, we've been working successfully with the Indonesians to try to protect that wreck. But uh, that that was startling to see that some of these uh, these Asian scrap iron companies uh, going out there and literally stripping um, every bit of metal from the wreck and from the sea floor. Uh, other examples I've seen of where you know there's been some scrap iron salvage on on uh, on World War II shipwrecks. It, they usually take it down to the sea floor and not don't take everything. But uh, in the Asia Pacific areas, they they have actually taken the wrecks down to removing everything. I know certainly we have lost a submarine in Indonesian waters called the USS Perch, uh, and uh, I think luckily the USS Houston is still in place. And, you know, as I mentioned, we're working with the Indonesians to protect that or create a maritime And in zone. all of these cases, we're talking about human remains there as well. There's human remains as well, too. And uh, there's been and quite a number obviously of... Obviously, they're um, just kind of being... Yes, there's been quite a number of British, Dutch, um, uh, and um, um, Australian ships lost in World War II that have been... And Japanese, probably the highest number is probably going to be a Japanese ships that have been... That's, and all of these would have human remains on board. So that's, a, that's an ongoing threat in that area. Um, and 
I guess, but one of the other things I tend to see a lot is that with advances in submarine technology and small manned submarines is, a, is perhaps a trend towards uh, uh, tourism for even these deep water sites is um, companies being able to take people down, not to disturb the wrecks, but perhaps to visit them and to, uh, and, you know, to look at them. Uh, so there's perhaps a future in there for a, tr- a future trend in, in underwater tourism beyond diving on these deep water sites. So um, before we uh, head to our conclusion here, um, would love to know the most difficult question we generally ask on PreserveCast, your favorite historic place or site? Well, that would be probably easy. It would have to be the Hunley, uh, since that's uh, that's been a major project in our life, and it, it it's it, it, it's also we haven't resolved the mystery of why the submarine sank, even though we've done a lot of uh, science, a lot of engineering, and a lot of analysis. Uh, that research still continues. So uh, it, it's, it is an amazing site and very interesting on many different levels, both scientifically, archaeologically, but then there's a human story as well, too, yeah. to the individuals involved and to the commander, uh, Lieutenant Dixon, of the, of the submarine. Yeah, having been there myself, I can't disagree with you. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good answer. Um, Dr. Nealon, it's been a pleasure to have you with us here today. Fantastic to hear about all the great work. Thank you for everything you're doing. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's good to know that uh, the Navy's history is in good hands. Uh, Thanks again for joining us here today on PreserveCast. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. Oh, cause Maryland, oh, you carry on.